Welcome to Orange Crest Community Church and OCCathome.com. We are so glad you're here. At OCC, our mission is to invite people to take their next steps with Jesus. And so we pray that through our time together, you're encouraged and challenged to move forward in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to Orange Cast Community Church. My name is Josh DeLaRosa, and we're continuing today on a message series called The Difference. And we've been tracing the impact of the Christian movement throughout history, uh, looking at the various sectors of human life and experience. And, and really, a lot of people have speculated as to whether or not Christianity has made uh, a difference and if it has really been helpful or hurtful to humanity. And here's the main question we've really launched from. Is the world better off or worse off because because of the Christian movement. And I don't know if you've thought about that before, but this is what we're exploring. We're actually trying to do sort of our own little version of Mythbusters and trying to understand if, if some of the things we hear from skeptics, if that's actually true. And so through this series, we're looking at sweeping change in countries and regions where Christianity has taken root amongst leaders and seeing the, the effective uh, uh, progress and just the improvements made in societies. We've also looked at healthcare and compassion, seeing the difference that Christians have made. Last uh, week, we looked at the issue of how Christianity has raised the in- inherent worth of women and children. And today, what I want to do is I want to look at the area of racism and slavery. And really, here's the question. What difference has Christianity made on racial barriers and divisions? And we're mostly drawing from uh, the book in the Bible known as the book of Acts. It's the fifth book in the New Testament. It, it gives us the history of the earliest uh, expansion of the Christian movement in the first century. And we're going to continue through uh, through Acts. We're in Acts chapter 15 today. Uh, but before we go there, today what I want to do is I want to get our bearings by going directly to the source of the Christian movement, Jesus himself. So I want to look at Luke chapter 4, just briefly, uh, because we want to look at what did Jesus actually set out to accomplish in the world? What was he hoping to do? When he came. So in, in Luke chapter 4, we find some documentation of a time when Jesus clearly states his purpose, and essentially his purpose was he came to set people free. So Luke 4, verse 16, the setting is where he made his purpose very clear. Luke 4, verse 16, it says, He came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. This was Jesus' hometown. He entered the synagogue, and on the Sabbath day, he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written. So Jesus asked the attendant of the synagogue there to give him uh, the scroll, the Old Testament scroll of Isaiah, an Old Testament book written hundreds of years before this. And he's about to read a prophecy about God's Messiah, the the Savior who God's people were waiting for, the long-awaited Savior. Now, they didn't realize it at first, but Jesus was reading this passage, and he's going to say that this is... Basically, why he's come. In fact, he is, has come to fulfill this prophecy. So look at the verses. Verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. This is the direct quote from Isaiah. He reads, Because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, he sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so, Jesus gives this powerful statement of his purpose. He came to give people release from spiritual captivity. He, he ends this sermon by saying, today, you've, as you hear this scripture, this is being fulfilled in your midst. <laughs> and he's basically saying, I'm the one who's come to do this. I've come to set people free. Now, he gave this powerful purpose statement, healing, freedom. And you know, some of you have experienced this type of freedom. 
However, we know that not everyone's experience with freedom has been the same. And sadly, today, uh, attitudes of superiority uh, can be prevalent in our hearts. You know, this isn't new to us. Attitudes of superiority have been prevalent throughout, really, the centuries, as you trace it back. How often has one group of people said, we are the superior group, and other groups are inferior, below, and undeserving? Many great evils, including racism and slavery, have been committed. As we as we just look at the world and history, uh, this really stems from this attitude of superiority. And Now, looking around, do you think our country is, is becoming more unified or more divided? Uh, to me, it sort of seems like a greater number of battle lines have been drawn. And there's, there's division here and now, but, you know, there, there was division during Jesus' day. And in the earliest, like in the first century, a time when the Christian movement really sparked and began, uh, Jesus and his followers were smashing all kinds of barriers that people would place between themselves to separate. Barriers related to race, gender, socioeconomics, and more. Barriers that kept threatening to sort of group people uh, throughout history. And Jesus, he taught his followers that, that these groups, these man-made barriers, they, they don't matter. They don't prevent a person from experiencing God's love, his forgiveness. And so Jesus declared this purpose. His purpose was, hey, I've come to give all people a chance to experience true and full freedom. Now, we who are Jesus' followers, we can carry forward this mission that he started. And today what I want to see is this, is that one way Christians carry out his purpose is by tearing down racial barriers. And let's look again at the spread of the Christian movement and see how the early church addressed an issue of prejudice and superiority that rose up. So this is found in Acts chapter 15. Uh, and before we get to that passage uh, that, that's in your listening guide, uh, we're going to sort of need to back up a little bit to the end of Acts chapter 14, just to give a little bit of context. Acts chapter 14, this is the end of Paul's first missionary journey. He and a group of, like a traveling team, went and took uh, the gospel message uh, to regions outside of Palestine. They 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 got out of uh, basically Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, we were told. That would be the mission. Would The mission of Jesus was to get the message outside uh, to the ends of the earth. And so, Paul is one key leader in this missionary team. And at the end of chapter 14, we have these words. Acts 14, verse 26. From there, they sailed back to Antioch. These, they, meaning Paul and Barnabas, uh, these two missionary partners sailed back to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. So this is sort of a homecoming experience for Paul and Barnabas. Uh, they returned to the church that sent them out after being gone for a period of about one year. Verse 27, it reads, After they arrived and gathered the church together, they reported everything God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, this is huge. I'm going to tell you why in just a moment. And it reads, And they spent a considerable time with the disciples. So here's the big news. Paul and Barnabas brought faith and light to the Gentiles. It says that God had allowed them to open the door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, what is a Gentile? That's an interesting word. If you look it up in the English dictionary, you'd see this. You'd find that a Gentile means, as a noun, it's a person of a non-Jewish nation or of non-Jewish faith. It also would say that a Gentile could be 
understood to be meaning a pagan, someone of the pagan religions, non-Jewish nations. Or as an adjective, Gentile could mean of or related to the nations at large as distinguished from the Jews. Now, this those are English definitions from the dictionary. The Greek word in the New Testament is the Greek word ethnos. And ethnos literally means the nations or the people. And But the sense is that Gentiles are a person from an ethnic group or a nation not allied with and trusting in the God of Israel. So back to the end of Acts chapter 14, it says, He, speaking of God, had, had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, to the nations. Now this is great news. God's kingdom is expanding further and further. If it never had expanded out uh, to the nations of the world, then very few of us could have had or would have ever been invited into God's family. So the church in Antioch was celebrating, and you have to understand that this church was actually a racially diverse group of people. There was a mix of nationalities in the church of Antioch. So Acts chapter 13, verse 1, reads this. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. First, Barnabas. Barnabas was of Jewish descent. He was a Cypriot. He was from the island of Cyprus, Jewish descent. Uh, but he, he didn't live in Antioch. He was sent out from that church. Uh, but he traces his roots back to the island of Cyprus. Simeon, it reads, another person in their church, who was called Niger. Now, in the Greek, Niger just means black or, or dark in color. And we don't know where he's from. Uh, we only see there's this indication of, of his dark skin. So that's Simeon. Also in the church, another member of the church was Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene is in North Africa. It's, if you were to look on a map and search Cyrene, you would find it's in, it's in modern-day Libya. So you see this mix of people and cultures. Then also Manaean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch. So this man, Manan, he grew up in the Judean region, which is where King Herod ruled, the king who was in charge when Jesus arrives on the scene when he's born in Bethlehem, King Herod. Uh, so this Manan, a Judean, essentially. And then Saul. Saul is, is we know him as Paul. Uh, Paul is from Tarsus. Uh, that is uh, not actually too far from the city of Antioch, so northwest of Antioch. So this church in Antioch's, Antioch was just, it was a mix. It was a blend of people and cultures. So naturally, when Paul and Barnabas returned uh, from uh, their trip, their first missionary journey, and they bring this report that there was uh, all of these Gentiles coming to faith in Christ, the, the acceptance of people from the outside, from other nations, from Gentile nations, was already normative in the church in Antioch. It was already a part of who they were. So that's the context of what we're looking at in Acts chapter 15. So, Acts chapter 15, verse 1. So, some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers. So, some men from Judea head to Antioch. Now, if you look on a map, uh, for example, here's a map right here. Jerusalem is where these men from Judea came from. Uh, Jerusalem is actually south on the map from Antioch. Uh, but, it's, Jerusalem is higher in elevation, so it reads, some men came down from Judea, meaning they traveled down in elevation. So this is simply a, a reference to elevation. They come down to, to the church in Antioch, and they teach the brothers, and here's what they said. And we don't know why they came down. It's unlikely that they were sent from the church, but probably these, these men took it upon themselves to bring a message. And here was their message. 
The message is, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. So their message is that circumcision, uh, was, which was a part of the Jewish custom and culture, and essentially this, this group from Jerusalem, these Jews from Jerusalem, came to Antioch. These were Christians, though. Christians who couldn't, you know, Jewish descent converted to Christianity, embraced the message of Jesus, that Jesus had risen from the dead. So these Jewish Christians come from Jerusalem to Antioch, and they make this announcement. Essentially, the announcement is, hey, it's fine if these outsiders want to become Christians. We're, we're excited, but they're going to need to do things our way. And so they need to be circumcised according to our laws and customs. They need to follow, follow the Jewish laws and customs. Well, as you can imagine, this message stirred up the group in Antioch. So verse 2, after Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about the issue. And when they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. So the whole trip, Paul and Barnabas, as they're traveling towards Jerusalem, they're just announcing the news all through the region. Gentiles are getting saved. Gentiles are getting saved. Gentiles are becoming Christians. They're beginning a relationship with God. They're celebrating this, and this is bringing joy to people in the region. Then they arrive in Jerusalem. It reads, when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles, and the elders. So now this is the official uh, church leaders. These were the recognized leaders of the church. And they reported, it says, all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up. So there's this renegade group of Jewish Christians, okay, Christians of Jewish descent, uh, this renegade group that either themselves went to Antioch, or maybe these were the ones that sent the other group who, who went down to Antioch. And here's what the group said. They got up and they said, it is necessary to circumcise them, speaking of these new Gentile Christians, and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So let's call this the Jesus Plus group. You know, you have the, the group that says, you know, you're saved by Jesus only, Jesus alone. Well, this is the Jesus Plus group. This group, for this group, if you aren't the right nationality, then grace isn't enough. We need to put something on top of Jesus. So it's Jesus Plus. Follow the Jewish customs and the Jewish laws. Namely, uh, the a tradition of having the men circumcised. So, these people, they were Christians, but they're, they're, they draw their roots from a very strict uh, group of religious leaders, the Pharisees. So, of the group of Pharisees, uh, these Christians had given up so much when they became Christians. Uh, these, having been raised in such a strict, traditional, legalistic family, for many of these people former Pharisees, few, for many of them, their own parents, their own family members would have totally rejected them because they became Christians and they embraced Jesus as their Messiah. And so they were probably rejected from their families. And so speaking of this one group, one man writes this about them, about the Christians who were from Pharisee backgrounds, Pharisee families. He writes, this is from a pastor, Kent Hughes, they lost everything because of their association with the Savior. It was natural for some of them to find it difficult to make a clean break with their past as Pharisees. Though though Christians, they could not bring themselves 
to give away centuries of distinctives that has set their people apart from the world. So with good intentions, Kent Hughes writes, they thrust those distinctives and traditions onto others. So this group, they just wouldn't let the issue go. It's got to be Jesus plus. In this case, for the men who are Gentiles, they need to be circumcised. They just wouldn't let it go. So the official church leaders now convene to really try to sort this issue out. So look at verse 6. The apostles and the elders gathered uh, to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up. This is Peter who followed Jesus, one of Jesus' closest disciples. He stood up and he said to them, brothers and sisters, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you that by the mouth of the Gentiles, that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. Now you can write down Acts chapter 10. You can check that out later. You'll read in Acts chapter 10 a story about how Peter, who was raised Jewish, he helped an Italian centurion soldier commit his life to Christ. Now Peter would have been of the mindset before knowing Christ that any non-Jew was unclean. And so he wasn't to relate to them. And so in Acts chapter 10, uh, Peter uh, goes to share the message of Jesus with an Italian soldier. And so Peter reminds them of the story. And then he states in verse 8, And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving, by giving them the Holy Spirit. He's referencing this man, this Italian soldier named Cornelius. He's like, you remember Cornelius, his, his close family? His friends, all his relatives, all of those people that were Gentiles, they were given the Holy Spirit. He says, just as he also did to us. They had the same Spirit of God living inside of them. Verse 9, he, speaking of God, made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. So Peter's saying, look guys, outer distinctions don't matter. Outer customs don't matter. They are of no real value because we all have this in common. Our hearts need cleansing. All of our hearts are filthy because of sin. All of our hearts are dirty because of sin. And we need our hearts washed clean. And this is available to everyone who trusts in Christ by faith. And then verse 10. Now then, why are you testing God, he tells the group, by putting a yoke on the disciples' neck? Next, that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear. So to put the Gentiles under the Jewish law would have been a crushing requirement. It would have enslaved them in an unbearable way. Peter's saying, look, it's impossible for anyone to keep the law fully. Even the best of the Jews were imperfect. They needed grace, which is why God sent Jesus to offer grace. And once again, Jesus came to set people free. So we come to verse 11. On the contrary, Peter States, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. (laughs) This is very helpful from Peter. He speaks up. It says in verse 12, the whole assembly became silent and listened to Barnabas and to Paul describe all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So as soon as Peter speaks into it, then everyone thinks, okay, this must be okay. And they turn, they give their attention to Paul and Barnabas. And they're just amazed at what is happening in the Gentile world. That the nations on the outside are coming to faith in Christ. They are being included in the family of God. And I think they receive the correction from Peter. He was the right guy to speak up. It really, really helped. And then this group was able to take in the news. 
Now, here's the point, and we still need to remember this today. God, he makes no distinction between peoples. And that's one of the key statements that Peter makes. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. And just like those Jewish Christians really struggled to live up to Jesus' radical liberty, Christians throughout the centuries have struggled with this as well. And if we're really honest at our core, even if we become Christ followers, we all naturally still want to sort of push ourselves to the front of the line. We all naturally want to put ourselves first. We want to be number one. In our hearts, we're selfish. And the darkness in our hearts will will try to sort of twist the scriptures even to make ourselves superior. And racism is easy to see as maybe someone else's problem, but the root of racism stems from putting ourselves above others, which, honestly, we all struggle with. And, and those Jewish Christians, you see, they feared that they would lose aspects of all their Jewish culture if, if they really let uh, these requirements go. And they really struggled to believe that the Gentiles could just receive faith. They, they really struggled to believe that they could just enter the church simply. And for some, this is still a temptation to, to sort of use external distinctions to divide, to dominate, to damage others. Now, you and my outer distinctions make no difference in regards to your access to God and His grace. And Christians through the centuries have stood up to uphold this point. This has been one of the significant differences that Christianity has made. And there's probably a handful of heroes who come to mind, but I'm sure it doesn't surprise you by now in this series to learn that Christians were the ones who worked to tear down racial barriers. John Dickerson, a pastor from Indianapolis, a a former journalist who studied and investigated the impact of the Christian movement, he states this. He states, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. is without a doubt among the most influential and successful advocates of racial equality and human rights. And a survey of his sermons, speeches, and writings makes clear that King was motivated and shaped by the teachings of Jesus and by the Christian Bible. Now, for over six years, King was the pastor of of Dexter Avenue King Memorial Baptist Church, uh, a church that his father had pastored. Uh, And MLK, he urged people to, to not judge people by the color of their skin, by the outer distinctions, but instead by the content of their character. And that sounds very familiar to what Peter stated in Acts 15, 9. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Also, Christians were the driving force toward the end of open slavery. Throughout history, freedom has not been the norm. Sadly, slavery has been the norm. Slavery actually was the norm in Mayan culture, Egyptian culture, Roman culture, Arab culture, Greek culture, and hundreds of other cultures. I want to show you some figures showing slavery throughout history. Here's some estimates, estimates of the number of slaves. Ancient Rome, 1.5 million slaves. In the Muslim world, 17, almost 18 million from the 1100s to the mid-1900s. In the Ottoman Empire, 2.5 million slaves. In the Crimean Canate, 1 to 2 million. In the Barbary Coast, 1 to 1.5 million. In the Qing Dynasty, 2 million. And in India, 8 to 9 million in 1841. So we're probably more familiar, though, with the African slave trade 
many millions of people, some would say between at least 12 million people made in God's image were enslaved, sold off, sometimes even by their own countrymen in huge numbers. And, and because of this trade, slavery became a problem, not just for America, but for most of the world. Look at, look at the terrible damage that this did. Here's some stats related to the African slave uh, trade. In Portugal, 4.65 billion or million slaves, African slaves. Uh, that's uh, modern Brazil. In Spain, modern Cuba, 1.6 million slaves. In France, uh, modern West Indies, 1.25 million. In Holland, 500,000. Britain, 2.6 million. In British North America, which is modern day uh, the U.S., 300,000 slaves. In Denmark, 50,000. And then uh, 50,000 in other places. But Christians were those who worked to end that norm and worked tirelessly. I'd like to share uh, two names of people in history that that really inspire. First is Harriet Tubman. Uh, she is there's actually a film about Harriet Tubman uh, that was released in 2019. She was called Moses. She had that nickname because she led so many people out of slavery, just as Moses led uh, the Israelites who were enslaved in Egypt out to captivity. Harriet Tubman. Here's a quote. Harriet Tubman quoted here: "God's time is always near. He gave me my strength. He set the north star in the heavens. He meant." I should be free. And, and her faith was so strong that she would ask God for direction out loud. As she led people to freedom, she would, and she was being chased by slave owners and helping people to get free from them, she would cry out to God to say, which direction should I run in? Should I go in? And she even is quoted for praying for her unsaved master. And you can read some of those prayers if you just search on that. But how could she do that? Well, it's because as a Christian woman, she believed that God was real. She believed this was wrong, and she lived a life of faith that took action. Another man who fought against slavery was William Wilberforce. Now, Wilberforce was not a humanitarian. He was actually not a good person. He didn't care about slaves, but then he became a Christian. And and he started reading the Bible. He started reading the New Testament. And next, he wrote a book titled Real Christianity, in which he wrote that God opened his eyes, as he's reading the Bible, to the evil of slavery. And so he fought against it. And he just spent the rest of his life trying to end the British slave trade. And the effects of his work impacted much of the world in his day. John Dickerson says this, Wilberforce remains credited more than any other individual with ending the slave trade in the vast British Empire, including India, which had an estimated 8 to 9 million indigenous slaves in the Hindu caste system. You see, Wilberforce's success gave the momentum that was needed to complete the abolition of slavery in other parts of the world. Here in the United States, it took place in the 1860s, and in Africa, it was in the 1890s. Dickerson also makes this point. He said, if you read your Bibles, you will see that slavery is declared evil by God. Anyone who claims to be a Christian while owning a slave is not a true follower of Christ. And all those who sit by while others are enslaved also cannot claim to be loving their neighbor as themselves as Jesus taught. He writes, therefore, as Christians, we give our lives and fortunes to end this evil in our land. If you remove these sincere Christ followers from world history, you get a very different world than the one we were born into. Not just a few of the influential abolitionists were Christians. No, he writes, every single influential abolitionist that he studied was a Christian. Now, what has motivated Christians to tear down 
racial barriers. Well, it's the driving force of Jesus living in a person. Christ followers, their desire is to follow their Lord Jesus, who when he started his whole ministry, he made this statement. He said, I have come to proclaim good news of the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to recover the sight of the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So Jesus' followers have been working to set people free on his behalf. And God actually gives us a vision of racial unity in heaven that is compelling. It's found near the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verse 9. And this is where God is taking history. He's taking history toward a point that is described in Revelation 7, 9. It reads, after this, John writes, And there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number. Just this massive group, massive multitude, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. This is a scene from heaven. This is a picture of heaven. And God is moving towards this end. And so we see displayed people of all nations, all tribes, all people groups. We should start living like we're in heaven right now. Not seeing distinctions. The church is supposed to be a colony, a little colony of heaven on earth. And we, we need to make no distinction in the way that we view people because God doesn't make distinctions. We need to love and serve all people because God loves and serves all people. We need to flat out re- refuse to exclude people that are different than us because Jesus, he didn't do that. He was, a, he was known as a friend to all people. And whenever you have the opportunity to share the gospel with those around you, as you love them the way that God does, you'll gain credibility that can form a bridge for the gospel message, the good news of Jesus, to travel across. Here's some next steps I want to encourage you to take. First, maybe you need to respond to the gospel of grace for the first time. Maybe you've never done that. Maybe you've never recognized and admitted that, that you've been going your own way in life. You'd say, you know, my heart is dirty. My heart is filthy. Well, Jesus came and to pay for our sin and to offer forgiveness and to help us to begin a relationship with God as we put our trust in Jesus by responding to God's grace through the blood that Jesus shed alone that can save us. Maybe you've never done that. I want to encourage you. If you've never done that for the first time, you can respond to him. You can uh, follow some tabs there as well on our website and learn more. Please let us know if we can assist you. Second, Maybe the next step is to confess any prejudice or superiority or, or racial barriers that you have, you feel like you've had. That's, that's, that's something if we, if we look at that and consider that, we just need to choose not to think of ourselves as superior to others, even in our mind. And then third, to forgive any hurts. Even if you've experienced any form of prejudice, if you've been dealing with some working through any bitterness, the step here is just to, to work through that towards forgiveness. Martin Luther King, he said this, We must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. He who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. And there's some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. When we discover this, we're less prone to hate our enemies. And Jesus actually this is rooted in Jesus' teachings. He taught us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. So if you're struggling to forgive any hurts that you've experienced, I just want to encourage you, God will help you to forgive. The very first step is to make a decision to forgive. To make a decision that I, I can forgive, I need to forgive. And the second step, it takes longer. longer. It's, it's, it's really working through the emotions of forgiveness, but God himself will give you what you need, even to work through the emotions of it, if you'll ask him for his help.
So let's pray as we wrap up. Father, thank you for our time as we've looked at your word and as we've looked at the struggle within the early church of superiority and um, prejudice towards those from the outside. I pray that uh, as that early church showed us uh, that God makes no distinctions and that he's given the Holy Spirit to us. Um, Lord, thank you that this uh, pattern has been established, that Christians uh, ought to be those who are making sure that racial barriers and uh, injustices do not exist any longer. So, Lord, uh, thank you for those in history that have risen up uh, in, in their time and in their day in order to um, fight for the rights of those who've been enslaved and who have been mistreated. And so, Lord, I pray uh, that you would continue through the Christian movement to make a huge sweeping impact on our world. Help us to be part of uh, bringing change from one life to one life, to one community to one community, to, from one region to the next, Lord. Help us to be part of that, this movement. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for joining us today. We pray you were encouraged by the message and equipped to take your next step with Jesus. Visit us online at occathome.com to learn more about how to connect with us. And join us again next week for another Orange Crest Community Church podcast. Have a great day.